We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God our Creator, not our government. I believe that Scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you, and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning. And an independent audit is blasting the Walt Disney Company for pulling a, quote, bait and switch on Florida. And it's calling it, get this, a mousetrap. Yes, the the auditors had some fun with uh, that language and a few choice uh Choice little double entendres there, but Disney's special governing district, the Reedy Creek Improvement District, was, quote, a stunning deviation from the good governance standards of the state of Florida, the audit concludes. So this is an exclusive from the Daily Wire that uh, they were able to obtain the report, and they report that Disney secured the ability to effectively govern itself in Florida for more than half a century by performing a quote-unquote bait-and-switch on the state and used its quote, complete and unaccountable governmental power to maximize its profits at the expense of the public good, according to an independent audit of the entertainment giant's role in the state. So the audit of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was established by Florida to bring Disney's business to the state in 1966, found that Disney seized complete control of the government entity and used the structure to establish itself as one of the world's largest corporations. And so uh, this report that was obtained by the Daily Wire uh, says the steps Disney took to maintain control over Reedy Creek are, quote, shocking, and the establishment, quote, facilitated the most egregious exhibition of corporate cronyism in modern America history. So this report comes nine months after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis eliminated the Disney-controlled district in a move some critics, including me, uh, said was motivated by his political fight with the company. Of course, Daily Wire did not include that. That was that was my little comment that I was also a critic of that, and I have been a critic of that. Uh, DeSantis said that he took the action because Disney should live under the same laws as everybody else, and that allowing a corporation to control its own government is bad policy. So the audit's findings will likely be seen as a vindication of Governor DeSantis, with the report stating that the Reedy Creek Improvement District's 55-year stint representing represented a stunning deviation from the good governance standards of the state of Florida. So let's break this down because I've gotten a lot of uh, comments from all of you, uh, my favorite people at, at AFR, that have asked me about my uh, disagreement with Governor DeSantis over this, and I do disagree with uh, with anybody. Even though I I obviously support Governor DeSantis in a lot of uh, various things, I think he's done a fabulous job overall with the state of Florida. I moved here because of the great things of the state of Cor- of Cal- of uh, Florida, rather not the state of California. What am I saying? I need more coffee. Clearly, this morning <laughs> to say the state of California, the state of Florida, and. 
and I'm also supporting him for president. Um, however, I can still disagree with things as an as an independent voter, a good uh, conservative, as a Christian. We should always uh, be critiquing and analyzing what any politician is doing, regardless of party, regardless of, of our support, regardless of whether we voted for them in the past, we plan to vote for them in the future. Uh, this does not mean that because I support a, a governor that I'm currently living under, I should not uh, critique his actions and say, is what he's doing actually constitutional or even is it best policy? Because remember, as we've talked about so often on this show, when we analyze the difference between constitutional versus unconstitutional or the state actions that follow the state constitution, the first question is, can the government agent or actor do the thing that they're that they are doing can they through uh, the rules established in the US constitution is it within their actual power and if it's not then the conversation ends there they're they're not allowed to do it because we have limited government with specific limited powers for a reason they can't just do whatever they want to do uh, but if the response to that question is yes that is allowed by the rules then the policy question comes should that government agent, actor, or entity do that thing? Is it good policy? And we can disagree and debate over policy, but we always, as good conservatives, need to require our government entities, agents, and actors to follow the rules. That's why we have a judicial branch that is not political. They should not be answering the should questions. They answer the can questions. It doesn't matter whether a majority of the Supreme Court justices particularly like what any politician or the legislative and executive branches are doing. They answer the can. Can they do it? If, if they can, then, then they can. If they can't, then they can't, regardless of partisan political policy debates. So my issue with Governor DeSantis is not one of should. My issue is one of can, because I do not believe that under the facts and circumstances of his fight with the Walt Disney Company, he as the sitting governor of Florida, in conjunction with the legislature, actually can retaliate against the Walt Disney Company for exercising constitutionally protected speech. That's what this debate actually comes down to. And so let's let's go back to 2022. And when this all started, when the uh, the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis then signed the Parental Rights and Education Bill. And remember, this bill in Florida was the one that was labeled uh, very falsely and hypocritically the Don't Say Gay Bill that limited the teaching of LGBTQ issues in public schools and uh, porn in public schools and and gave uh, parents certain enumerated rights uh, to participate in the curriculum of, of uh, publicly funded schools. All of that is great. I very openly publicly supported that legislation. It was a great thing. The state of Florida, its legislature and its governor had the uh, power to promulgate that bill, to have that legislation pass and to have the governor sign it. Great. That's, that's fantastic. Disney, as a corporation in the state of Florida, had the constitutionally protected right as a corporation, which the law also says that a corporation is, is merely an association of 
individuals. We can all pool our resources as an association, and a corporation can, for purposes of First Amendment constitutionally protected rights, act as an individual for purposes of things like speech. So when a corporation like the Walt Disney Company, then publicly says that it objects to the parental rights and education bill, it can do that. Now, I disagreed, and I disagreed openly with the Walt Disney Company because I like the parental rights and education bill. I think that it was great, and I think that the Walt Disney Company made a very big mistake by openly saying that they disagreed with the parental rights and education bill. And they even went further and said that they wanted to use their considerable resources in the state of Florida to try to get that bill repealed. Now, corporations can lobby. Of course, they have to do that within the bounds of the law. But the Walt Disney Company had every right to do that. Now, as private citizens, can we object to that? And a lot of conservatives have decided that they will no longer in any way Uh, have stocks or fund or participate in activities at at the Walt Disney Company overall because they wanted to essentially boycott and say, we so disagree with your statement coming out against the parental rights and education bill that we as citizens no longer want to Uh, want to fund the Walt Disney Company, and we don't want to give our dollars to a company that would put out that kind of statement. They're free to do that. We are free to use our dollars how we see fit, and, and people can do that. So everything's fine at this point, right? So the Florida legislature has has done their parental rights and education bill. They're allowed to do that by the rules. The Walt Disney Company has objected to that, so they're going to lobby against it. They're allowed to do that by law and constitutionally protected rights under the First Amendment that through the 14th now apply to the states. They can do that. And then individuals, we the citizens, can can react to that. And I have opinions on on all of those things, but for purposes of this limited segment, we'll just we'll just pause there and say then the next action, because the Walt Disney Company said that they were going to lobby against this bill, Governor DeSantis and the legislature then said, Okay, we are going to then defund uh Reedy Creek. We are going to then Uh, go back and take control. We're going to uh, then restructure this. And Disney, because you have this special privilege, which by the way, there I've, I've since learned there are about approximately 1200 different special districts in the state of Florida. The villages is one, for example, Disney is not the only one that has these special privileges in the state of Florida. Then the Florida legislature and Governor DeSantis were then going to take away their special privilege. That is expressly an textbook retaliation against constitutionally protected speech. Now, you don't have to like what Disney said. I don't like what Disney said. I totally disagree with them. But what I care about here for purposes of our rule book and constitutional analysis is that I do not want to set a precedent that a government actor, a governor on a state level, can retaliate against a corporation or an individual in his state simply for exercising their right to speak and their right to lobby and to object to what their government is doing in legislation. Imagine for a moment if this was the Walt Disney Company in the state of California. Let's actually go back to the state of California. And the Walt Disney Company was objecting to um, some kind of abortion legislation that Governor Newsom had signed. And, and they came out and said, you know, we're a family company. We don't think this is good for families. We're going to lobby against that. And 
Gavin Newsom said, well, fine, I'm going to take away some special privilege in the state of California because I don't like that you don't uh, that, that you are speaking out against what I'm doing as governor. Well, conservatives, of course, would object to that. We would say, absolutely, Disney has the right to speak. But but here's the key difference. We would be agreeing with the speech of the company and disagreeing with what the governor's actions in the state of California were doing. Well, the analysis for purposes of the rule book does not depend on or turn on whether we agree with the actions of the company or we agree with the actions of the governor. What matters is the principle and what matters is the rule book. Because if we let these types of things happen, when we agree with what the government is doing, then the government can easily use that same precedent and turn it around and use it on some, on another company that we do agree with. And so it can't be based on our subjective uh, definition of, of whether or not we agree with the company versus the government actor. That's, that never happens in the law. It's always the principle. And the First Amendment retaliation uh, claims for purposes of succeeding on the merits must demonstrate three things. And by the way, this is exactly what the court case right now between Governor DeSantis and the Walt Disney Company, Disney has sued over this exact First Amendment constitutional retaliation issue. It's not about their speech and the, the content of their speech. It's about First Amendment retaliation. If Governor DeSantis had done this in and the the state legislature had done this without this being tied specifically to speech. If they had just come in and done this independent audit and it had showed everything about this corporate cronyism, then they would have been absolutely within the can of the law and, and in my opinion, the should of going in and redeveloping and and, and redesigning Reedy Creek. and But they should have done that independently without the constitutional retaliation against protected speech elements. And so the, they must demonstrate three things. First, the, the, um, the plaintiff, in this case, the Walt Disney Company, engaged in protected conduct, their speech, their lobbying. That's protected. This means the plaintiff's speech or expression was the type traditionally covered under the First Amendment. Second, an adverse action was taken against the plaintiff that would deter a person of ordinary firmness from continuing to engage in that speech or conduct. Adverse action, it doesn't matter whether it's a special privilege. It just matters that it was adverse to the company. So many people focus on, well, this was a special privilege. Why should they be allowed to? The status quo was that it was a special privilege. So that was an adverse action. And third, There is a cause and effect relationship between those two elements. For example, the adverse action was motivated at least in part, doesn't even have to be wholly, doesn't even have to be halfway, at least in part by the plaintiff's protected conduct. Of course, everybody knows. And DeSantis and the legislature admit it. This was the the fact that they targeted Reedy Creek was specifically because of Disney's pushback against the parental rights and education bill. So this is not me standing up for Disney's Disney's specific speech and the content of the speech. It's me standing up for the U.S. Constitution and the fact we have to protect the First Amendment against government actors. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. 
We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say freedom? CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And uh, that last segment went by so fast. And so if you have any other questions about uh, my perspectives on the whole Walt Disney versus DeSantis thing, feel free to uh, write in Jenna at AFR.net. And I also did an entire uh, podcast back last year on Salem. You can find that at thejennaellisshow.com that went a lot more in depth into uh, the specific constitutional protections and you know some of that. And so um, even though that was kind of a, a quick 15-minute summary, uh, that is available at thejennaellisshow.com. So let's turn our attention now to artificial intelligence. This topic keeps coming up uh, because there's so much going on in the state of not only the country, but also the world. And Axios had a really interesting piece yesterday titled, Behind the Curtain, the United States Not Ready for Era of Robotic AI World Wars. Uh, this is really fascinating. And joining me now to discuss is our good friend Carl Zabo, who is the Vice President and General Counsel for Net Choice and Professor of Internet Law at George Mason, Mason University's Scalia Law School. So, Carl, uh, good morning. And um, this is really fascinating. So, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is kind of this, you know, all of the Transformer movies and you know, some of these things. I mean, is that like, is that yeah. literally what, what we're looking at in terms of the future of wars? Yeah, not quite. Not quite yet, at least. So I will say that. I mean, the way to think about this is, you know, there's the old adage of uh, bringing a knife to a gunfight. Well, that's what the future of warfare will be like if the U.S. doesn't innovate on artificial intelligence. We will be technologically behind because the battlefield is shifting. It's shifting not just from a physical landscape, but also to a virtual landscape. So let me kind of break this down in two different ways. So you got the physical landscape. So right now, uh, we are developing planes and fighter jets that can be piloted by artificial intelligence. And that does sound scary at first until you realize almost every single commercial airliner we fly on is almost primarily piloted for the majority by artificial intelligence. Pilots are there but it's mostly done by the computers. The same thing is going to be true with the robotic and AI-generated fighter jets, and they need to be able to make changes and decisions in real time at the speed of light and not be able to wait for humans. So where humans will be is they will be what is called on the loop, not in the loop. So humans will outline the rules of engagement, 
whether to attack, what are the parameters for, for conflict, and then the artificial intelligence will go ahead and do it. So that's where artificial intelligence is leading in the physical space. And now I talked about the, I mentioned the virtual battlefield. That's another area where artificial intelligence is going to be absolutely critical to our national defense. We have been told that right now we are basically being attacked nonstop by, at our critical infrastructure, uh, as well as our defense of our allies in the Middle East and over in Ukraine. And these attacks are virtual. They are online. They are happening basically at the speed of light. And they, kind of like the raptors in the movie Jurassic Park, the bad actors are kind of probing the fence, trying to find any weakness, any hole that they could slip their malware through and shut down some of our major systems or steal our personal information. So what we need is essentially artificial intelligence to combat that because the bad actors are using artificial intelligence. So the system that the bad actors are using, basically they're learning. So every time they do a test, they do an attack and it fails, it makes an adjustment and then attacks again. And that's done by the artificial intelligence used by the bad actors. We need artificial intelligence to essentially stop the bad actors. So when there is an attack and a possible penetration, we need artificial intelligence on our side to be able to plug those holes and protect America. So artificial intelligence is going to be absolutely critical on both the physical and virtual battlefield. And that's where the United States cannot afford to give up its technological supremacy, much in the same way that we've given away our energy independence. So, Carl Sabo, as you're describing this, it sounds like the artificial intelligence battle is just a a technological advancement. I mean, almost similarly to saying that as as any technology progresses, we need to, as a country and certainly the military, be on the forefront of that so that we are not bringing antiquated uh, military weaponry to a... 21st century battle. I mean, as as has occurred throughout uh, human history in terms of wars, any type of advancing technology needs to be harnessed uh, by countries who care about their military strength. So why is Congress viewing artificial intelligence in almost like its own special box and category, and they're almost ignoring it when it just seems like this is the next advancement for military technology? Yeah, a a lot of lawmakers, I think, are looking at AI in one of a couple of different ways. More often than not, the conversation devolves into either artificial intelligence is the terminator or it is racist. And those are, those are really immature conversations to be had. Uh, one of the things that needs to be crystal clear with respect to artificial intelligence is that it is heavily regulated today. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of laws that apply to artificial intelligence. And that's because the United States systems of laws are predicated on outlining and criminalizing the bad actions, not the tools that it takes to do them. So a simple example would be a hammer. We don't outlaw hammers. But we do outlaw destruction of private property. So if you use a hammer to break a window, that's a crime. But we don't care how you did it. We just care what the outcome was. Same thing true with artificial intelligence. If you use it to commit fraud, it is fraud, not fraud committed with artificial intelligence. So I think there's a there's a lack of understanding about the hundreds and thousands of laws that already cover artificial intelligence. The second component is kind of this, this uh, AI is racist conversation. We have seen for the past several years the injection of 
military in particular, but as into every other aspect of our lives. And with respect to our military right now, we are seeing an absolute dearth of capable and valid candidates for our military engagement. And that is led by, as a lot of people think, the, the pivot towards this DEI agenda rather than trying to find the best soldiers and the best officers capable to do the job. So one of the things that we've seen with respect to things like the President Biden's executive order, as well as some legislation on the Hill, is this attempt to eject DEI into AI. And that's just ignorant because artificial intelligence could actually be the least racist tool we have because it doesn't see colors. And instead, that obsession with DEI will actually cripple our ability to develop, innovate, and provide our soldiers and our commanders with the best tools to get the job done on the battlefield. So, Carl, it, it also sounds like some of the ways that that these people are approaching artificial intelligence is is how the Democrats are approaching what they would term as common sense gun control, for example. Like they are imputing a motive into the tool itself as as a firearm rather than what the tool is used for. And we already, um, as in your example of, of the hammer, it's very similar with guns. I mean, we already have laws against murder, assault, um, harassment, any of those types of menacing, felony menacing with a gun, all of those things. And it doesn't actually matter the tool that is used to commit the murder. It matters the outcome. And that is what is punished and criminalized by law. And yet the the leftists would impute a motivation to anyone who owns or utilizes a firearm for any purpose, similarly to how they're imputing this kind of moral imperative into artificial intelligence that it doesn't sound like is is particularly accurate. And so why are we having a conversation mainly about the supposedly subjective morality of artificial intelligence rather than just utilizing this as a tool and having the human intelligence and the parameters of, of the art of war and um, the morality that just worth your all of those things that they're already in place going into these conversations about AI. Yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of this conversation, especially from a lot of people on the left, is being driven by a desire to create fear and or a desire to control. So with respect to the fear, uh, for example, the President Biden's executive order on artificial intelligence was created, and, and I wish I were making this up, it was created because President Biden saw the new Mission Impossible movie and it scared him. And so wow. now we literally have a president, leader of the free world, creating legislation because of a movie that uh, stars Tom Cruise. And, and I loathe to think what will happen when President Biden sees the movie Godzilla. So there's kind of this <laughs> ignorance fear factor. But I think also we can't ignore the fact that we have the 2024 election coming up. And a lot of Democrats are still under the delusion that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 because of social media. And they are terrified that something similar will happen because of artificial intelligence. They assume that the American people are so stupid, uh, that we are so ignorant, 
that we will only believe what we are told by the machine as well instead of developing our own preformed thoughts. So this is an attempt to seize control of communication. We're starting to see legislation, uh, for example, in California, Michigan, Washington, that would actually regulate the use of artificial intelligence in advertising, in election ads. And I think this is kind of just a gateway to seizing control of the way people advertise in political campaigns. Wow. And you know, some some days like today, I'm so grateful for the medium of radio rather than TV so that um, it is not so obvious that I am over here rolling my eyes at, at Joe Biden, because that is just absolutely insane uh, to base policy off of a Hollywood movie. But, um, you know, but here we are. And so I mean, it's a good what movie, is though. It is. That's true. But uh, but we all know that it's that it's it's primarily fiction and we can suspend our disbelief. I mean, I learned that in undergrad, right, in in like my fine arts class. But um, but to to base policy on that is just so ridiculous. And so where what is the actual inherent danger potentially to America when we're talking about, for example, the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas, um, you know, Ukraine and Russia and how the United States is um, is determining how exactly to participate or not in terms of those conflicts. And if we escalate into a third world war, if the United States is behind the curve on artificial intelligence, what actually is the risk uh, to the United States? Yeah. So you mentioned Israel. Israel's Iron Dome is based on artificial intelligence. And this is the Israeli defense system that is able to shoot down rockets, from Hamas, from Hezbollah in matters of seconds. And that uses artificial intelligence because as soon as the rocket is launched and detected, the intercept rocket has to be calculated and directed to intercept within fractions of seconds. These are calculations so complex that it would take a human being at least a couple of minutes to calculate. But the artificial intelligence is able to do it in fractions of seconds. So that's one simple example where artificial intelligence is being deployed today on the battlefield to save lives. Now, your your broader question is, what would happen if the U.S. decides to stop developing? Well, we would look like Europe. And today, the United States is the preeminent military force on the planet. We have the greatest technology and we have the greatest military on the planet. But one of the greatest threats successful military is complacency and basically laziness. And right now, if we decide to stop allowing people to innovate, to develop artificial intelligence, if we adopt a European approach to innovation, that is only when the government says you may do something, can we as Americans do something, very anti-freedom, very European, then we will have a military that looks like Europe. And if you look at what's going on in Ukraine, no one's turning to France. No one's turning to Holland to go and save Ukraine. They're turning to the United States of America to help save Ukraine. And so that's where we will be positioning ourselves. We will make ourselves more like Europe, less like the preeminent defenders of freedom and democracy around the world. And let's remember that the bad actors are foreign adversaries, whether they're in China, whether they're in Iran, whether they're in Russia, they are developing these technologies. And we have one choice. We can either 
continue to develop, to continue to be the preeminent, or we can surrender that technological and military superiority to foreign adversaries who are anything but pro-freedom. Well, and this article in Axios uh, cites to retired Army General Mark Milley, who um, I know not a lot not a lot of conservatives are a fan of, but he was uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and warned in a report that he wrote shortly uh, before retiring in the fall, quote, we're, we are witnessing an unprecedented fundamental change in the character of war and our window of opportunity to ensure that we maintain an enduring competitive advantage is closing. And in just the last minute I have with you, uh, Carl Zabo, um, you mentioned that that Iran, um, not just China, I mean, we all know that China is developing AI, but Iran and some of these other countries as well that we would um, consider our adversaries and certainly in these conflicts are developing AI. And so um, that should be very concerning um, to the United States as well. I mean, are, are, we're not even at the level that Iran is with AI? Well, right now, uh, we're, we're probably ahead of where Iran is. We're probably ahead of where China is. But just like in any race, if you stop running, the people behind you are going to catch up and pass you. And that's unfortunately what we're seeing. We're seeing calls for uh, innovation to pause, uh, development to stop, and government to weigh down development with red tape and bureaucracy. And if we do that, it's like trying to run a race when you've got a bunch of weights on your ankles. The competitors yeah, it's, it's never going to work. Blaze right past us. And we can't let that Yeah, well, Carl, Carl Zabo, really appreciate you calling uh, the attention to this. It's really important. Vice President and General Counsel for Net Choice. And we always appreciate your comments. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Finally, some good news. Because of you, Preborn has rescued over 44,000 babies this year alone. Right now, thousands of mothers are awaiting birth of their precious babies, and thousands upon thousands of babies are taking their first breath. Since its beginnings, Preborn's Networks of Clinics has rescued over 270,000 babies. That is a miracle. The overturning of Roe versus Wade only made the left more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more passionate to save babies. Thanks to Preborn, we can do just that. For $28, you can empower a mother to choose life. Once she sees the precious life growing inside of her and hears her baby's heartbeat, she is twice as likely to choose life. And right now, through your match, your gift is doubled. Please give your most generous gift that will go 100% toward life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are so privileged, as always, to be joined by our good friend, Joel Rosenberg, who is our correspondent from Jerusalem on all things going on in Israel. He is the editor-in-chief of All Israel News and continues to bring very timely updates on the conflict between Israel and Hamas. So, Joel, good morning. And uh, what is going on in terms of um, the update that uh, people should know? Hey, Jenna, great to be with you. Uh, the good news, though you wouldn't know it from listening to anybody in the American press, Israel's winning. Um, uh, but the ceasefire didn't work, uh, meaning, um, you know, everybody's been shouting ceasefire, 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 whether it's President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, 
um, of course, Israel, uh, Israel's enemies, um, but in many pro-Hamas organizations and rallies, ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. So we had a ceasefire for five days, and who broke it? Hamas. We had a ceasefire on um, October 6th, and they broke it on October 7th and, you know, murdered 1,200 people, and they just broke it again. So, um, but, but Israel is using that time that we, of the five, six days of the ceasefire to, um, to get ready. And when the ceasefire was broken, because we knew it would be, we did get 100 hostages back almost, so that was uh, actually wonderful. Um, but we're back at war, and we are steadily um, eradicating the Hamas terror operation. And I suspect soon we will hear cries for a ceasefire again. Um, um, so, but it's important for people to know that Israel's winning. We are systematically crushing um, the Hamas terror organization. We've identified 800 uh, terror tunnels. It's basically a terror uh, subway system under the Gaza Strip, and we keep um, finding them and blowing them up, and now Israel's actually considering flooding them uh, with ocean seawater so that uh, they can't be used in the future. Well, that is good news, uh, Jill Rosenberg, too. And you're right, that's not the perception from mainstream media. And uh, there was a lot of uh, criticism of Israel for having uh, those few days of the ceasefire, even though the hostages were returned and that was an exchange, though it wasn't just a a direct return. Um, And there was some concern as well that Hamas was going to try to rebuild in those those couple of days for the inevitable break of, of the ceasefire. Were they able to rebuild as much as was anticipated, or um, how damaging, I guess, to Israel was that that particular negotiation? Well, look, Jenna, you're right. There was a lot of criticism internally, a lot of angst here inside Israel, because for those five or six days, um, we were going to get uh, some of the hostages back, and we got 100. That was amazing, and I think it's actually miraculous, because when ISIS captured people, in Iraq and Syria. They didn't give those people back. They burned them alive or chopped their heads off live on YouTube. So that's actually what Israelis were expecting. That's what I was expecting. I think it's the prayers of millions of Christians, uh, including those in your audience, who I think God moved, uh, was moved by those prayers and let uh, forced Hamas to release those hundred hostages. So we need to be grateful for that. And that's the first thing. But yes, people were anxious here. Why? what you said, that that time that the time of not fighting and attacking Hamas would would give them the momentum back. I, we haven't seen that. Rather, we saw Israel prepare properly and aggressively for the moment that that ceasefire was broken. It was broken. We were ready. And we're on the offense again. Uh, the, the other reason, of course, was that people were anxious and upset was that Israel had agreed to release many Palestinian prisoners who were uh, you know, convicted on terror charges, and they're on the loose now. So there is a concern that they are going to return to their terrorist ways. But but Israel made that choice uh, with our democratically elected government that it's, that is a higher priority for us right now to get as many hostages back as possible out of the clutches of the murderous, uh, you know, barbaric Hamas uh, terrorists. So um, that was partially successful. There's still about 140 that remain, Israeli uh, hostages that remain in uh, Hamas captivity. But right now, um, 
there's no there's no offer on the table, so we are pounding Hamas uh, into oblivion. I'm speaking with Joel Rosenberg, who is the editor-in-chief of All Israel News, and you can find all of those breaking stories at allisrael.com. In fact, the headline on the splash page this morning as I'm pulling this up is exactly what you alluded to, Joel. Uh, Israel is preparing operation to pump seawater into Hamas tunnels, so all of that and more is on allisrael.com. And the other um, news that that was really just disturbing that broke um, this morning, and and if you are listening and you have kids in your car, you may want to turn down uh, the volume a little bit uh, for for this part of this because um, there are investigators, according to National Review, that finds Hamas weaponized sexual violence against Israelis during the October 7th attack and leading uh, women's rights advocates, um, even including Sheryl Sandberg, who's been a longtime advocate for women's and um, girls' rights and, you know, a little bit more, more feminist, but certainly appreciate her work there, has confronted the United Nations about not condemning the sexual violence um, Hamas used against Israel. And um, you know, this is just really disturbing that it's not not just blatant terrorism and that kind of violence, but that they would specifically attempt to break the spirit of Israelis, which is uh, what has come out here. What can you tell us about these types of war crimes? Yeah. Well, Jenna, this, I'm glad you raised this because this is also one of the top stories on the allisrael.com website right now, and that is that uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Gilad Arden, uh, has really been scorching um, the U.N. and particularly the U.N. Uh, Women's uh, uh, Council, that uh, Women's Rights Council, that they're saying nothing, nothing about the, the, the torture the um, rape and sexual brutalization of women, uh, of Israeli women, by Hamas on October 7th. Why does that not rise to a war crime? Why does that not rise to something that, um, that women's rights councils all over the world, whether they're on the right or the left or the center, and especially at the U.N., why does this not matter? Is it only non-Jewish women, if they're raped, that that's a bad thing, but Jewish women being raped and brutalized sexually? That that's okay. We're silent. Like, what happened to the Me Too movement? What happened to the uh, the Never Again movement? What ha- like, this is insane. And 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 there's documented cases. I'll just give you one case. I won't give it graphically, but one of but an Israeli man that was uh, in one of these communities along the border. He hid under a group of, of of dead Israeli bodies, you know, of his friends and colleagues for hours, so that Hamas. Terrorists wouldn't find him. But as he did, he witnessed atrocities like one of the women in his kibbutz, uh, agricultural settlement, um, being raped seven or eight times and then shot and killed. And so there are eyewitness testimonies. You know, to her credit, and I, I'm not sure if I've ever said this before, Jenna, but to her credit, Hillary Clinton has now spoken out several times, including in a video. Um, that uh, Ambassador Gilad Ardan showed at the UN, speaking out against this type of um, attack against Israeli women and asking why aren't other people speaking up. And I think this, that's an interesting um, alliance suddenly, right, uh, of, of conservative um, voices, men and women, along with liberal um, voices, men and women, including Hillary Clinton, saying, Sexual violence is always wrong. Rape is always wrong. 
and it's wrong whether it happens um, uh, domestically or internationally, and it's certainly wrong in the case of, of the war crimes that Hamas has committed. Why isn't the world speaking about it? And it just goes to this this sickening world in which even most of the media, the mainstream media, won't talk about this. But if but if it was Harvey Weinstein, we'll talk about it. If it was Bill Clinton, uh, Cosby, yes. And those were right to talk about those. But why not? Why isn't the world the media giving saturation coverage to these atrocities against Israeli women? That is a great question. And hopefully we'll see, you know, just like just like in women's sports, we see this kind of unusual alliance between conservatives and then the women's rights advocates and the feminists that are actually saying, well, no, men, biological men should not be able to participate in women's sports. And you're seeing um, that that some rationality is finally uh, coexisting between the two groups. And so, you know, even if it's Hillary Clinton, who I disagree with her on almost everything, but she's right on this. And we can at least acknowledge that and say that that's correct and that that hopefully more of the left and more of the Democrats uh, will be concerned about what's going on um, in in Israel from this perspective, even if it takes just being concerned about the women that are being absolutely brutalized. And and this this is and should be characterized as a war crime. I mean, it's it's broadly defined, of course, as just absolutely. an action that's carried out during the conduct of war that violates more accepted international rules of war. And this absolutely would. And so you know, when, when we're looking, though, at some of the the anti-Semitic sentiment um, in America, unfortunately, with college students and you know some of these other things, are you seeing uh, this issue just being totally ignored because the anti-Semitic sentiment is more important, perhaps, or is uh, that to them than brutalizing women regardless of their their race or nationality? Yes, and, and I think the best example of that, Jenna, would be the squad. So why aren't Rashida Tlaib and uh, AOC and, uh, and Ilan Omar and others in the squad who are women, why aren't they able, much less willing, to forcefully f- speak out and denounce um, rape, sexual brutalization, as well as beheading and setting people on fire? The, they would if it wasn't Israelis, if it wasn't Jews. What's, what we're watching, there, there's only one explanation for a group of high-profile women, uh, you know, uh, progressive advocates um, of what they say are you know, women's rights issues. For them to be silent on this means they see Jewish-Israeli women as deserving it, that, that it's not actually a crime if it's done against Jewish women or against Israeli-Jewish women. That there's that's the only conclusion you can reach because they're totally silent on an issue that if if it were Muslim women, I think if it was reversed, what if Israeli soldiers had done this to Palestinian women? We would be hearing this nonstop from the squad, from CBS Evening News, from CNN, from everybody else, and and rightly so, but it's not Israeli, it's Hamas, and yet there's this 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 moral. Uh, degeneracy that is that is so clear, and it comes from anti-Semitism. It comes from a hatred of Jewish people that blinds otherwise supposedly rational people from even making the case that they would make in any other situation.
Mm. It, that is just completely unjustifiable, uh, Jill Rosenberg. And and as Christians and conservatives, you know, we need to be the standard and and exercise uh, the the moral imperatives of denouncing any type of. Um, heinous act, regardless of of the identity of the person against whom it's committed, and and it's absolutely disgusting and disturbing that uh, that the United Nations and the Squad and you know and anyone else would not denounce these types of of heinous acts. And meanwhile, the White House is pressing Congress to pass Ukraine aid. And I don't hear really much of anything in terms of, I mean, you know, Joe Biden's administration did help in terms of some of the negotiations for uh, the release of the hostages. But what about aid to Israel? I mean, that's it, it, to me, it is such a blatant disrespect to Israel to be so focused on Ukraine that he's not even talking about Israel. Yeah, well, I, you know, as you know, and we've talked about it before, I, I do support um, continuing to help. Um, Ukraine fight against uh, the monster of, of Moscow, uh, Vladimir Putin. But let's keep in mind, they have received tens and tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars. And Israel has, you know, I think Speaker uh, Mike Johnson's approach has, has been appropriate, which is let's deal with Israel first and, and on its own with this $14 billion deal that, that the House passed. And then Uh, Let the Senate pass that. Let's get that on the president's desk and sign. And then let's have an honest conversation about how much and how and what when uh, we continue to help our other uh, friends. And uh, Ukraine's not technically an ally. Um, But so if it were me, I would be supportive of aid, but not maybe the package that they have right now. But let's deal with Israel on its own. It's an emergency situation. And Israel needs these arms right now. Yes, and and that's where this um, the the only thing that President Biden really has proposed has been uh, funding Israel in companion with Ukraine in order to force uh, the Ukraine package. And Speaker Johnson, you're absolutely right. Jill Rosenberg has wanted to separate these. I think they should be separated so that we can see the vote tally. We can also deal with those issues separately. It shouldn't be this whole package that Israel is just tagging along with their forced. Uh, aid to Ukraine. But uh, Jill Rosenberg, Editor-in-Chief of All Israel News, find that at allisrael.com. Always appreciate your updates. We are praying for you. We are praying for the peace and people of Israel. And we will be back tomorrow here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.